We're turning this morning to the scripture reading we had from Psalm 32, and we'll be considering this psalm and its message. It is a remarkable psalm, as they all are, of course, of David, revealing to us the root to genuine peace, happiness, blessedness, and uh, the steps and stages are given throughout the psalm. It is remarkably straightforward, plain speaking, and deals with our deepest needs. Furthermore, it is David's own personal experience. And also, and we'll show this just uh, by one or two instances, it is the consistent message of the Bible. Uh, those of us who are believers and familiar with the scriptures, that'll come as no surprise. But perhaps if there are any who are not too sure about the scriptures, and whether they have evolved and developed and changed, absolutely not the case. The divine word of God gives the same unchanging uh, message from cover to cover. And in our age, we're not ashamed at all, and in the least, to preach this unchanging gospel. Mankind seeks peace and happiness and bliss and blessedness. Well, the term blessedness is, which is the one used by David, I should have read first one, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. Blessedness is, I suppose, strictly a scriptural or biblical term, a divine term. And I think even the world recognizes that, uh, that it is something different over and above the happiness and peace that might be achieved in this world. This is God-given. But as I was saying, for all that, it is elusive. Uh, people don't really find it or discover it, or at the very least hold on to it. They might have passing periods and times when they think all is well, when they have contentment in life, when there are periods when, as it were, the sun shines with a rosy glow. But the storms soon come in and the winter of life approaches. And it is just not something we can hold on to, put into a safe and keep. Except here. Except as David will describe to us. And it is nothing less than that. Absolute contentment and blessedness. Uh, will people eventually, I think, give up the quest? They resign themselves to a life where... It's never really going to quite meet, meet up to what they would have hoped it to be. It won't quite be uh, what they dreamt it might be. And so all of us just resign ourselves to what life is. Make do and get on with it. And uh, that's the tragedy of human existence, that we miss the purpose of life. And uh, the main reason for this, and David really opens with this, I will come to the to the uh, psalm now, but these are just inter introductory remarks. This is because man overlooks, doesn't see, has a blind spot for his deepest needs. We don't really understand ourselves. We don't recognize the fact that there's something missing in our lives, that there's something amiss, that there's a deep flaw running through human character and existence, that we are fallen, as the scripture tells us, that we are sinful, that there is unresolved guilt, that the 
uh, lies of this world, the changing and shifting uh, uh, morality of this world gives us no peace and satisfaction. So we overlook these things. We seek all in this life, in its ideologies. And it's not surprising that we come up short. And the one most obvious thing that is right before us is discounted at once. There's a reflex of prejudice. It is just overlooked. And uh, David opens this up for us and uh, presents it to us. God is over all. These are fundamental truths. This world is all about God, not about us. It's his universe. We're absolutely dependent upon him. And that's wonderful. He's made us in his image. He's made us so that we might understand deep and wonderful things, communion, fellowship with God, profound things. That's what the human soul is designed for. But we subsist on scraps. We refuse, if you will, the manner of God, the truth of God. And that's the starting point. Uh, and if we don't resolve our issues with God, we'll never be happy. So here it is. Let's look at it. David speaks about man's greatest need. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. I said it was going to be straightforward. There's no complexity here. There's no psychological analysis. There's no digging around in problems in our youth and philosophies and other things that have caused us our problems in life. It is as simple as that. We've sinned against God. He is angry against us, and we live under the shadow of his wrath and of his judgment. It is as plain as that, and this was David's experience. Not to say that God somehow is this tyrant waiting to pounce on our every failure. Actually, he's the opposite. He is long-suffering, patient, appealing. He has done all for us, but he is a God who is holy and just. And if we will refuse him and continue to do so, he can only then judge us. But David shows us the way out from these things, from the shadow of our sin and rebellion against God. And uh, he speaks about these things. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. The word transgression means revolt. Or rebellion and that's what it is once we become of age as it were we declare our independence from God as it dawns on us perhaps we grow up with some religious influence society perhaps trains us to behave in certain ways but once we begin to realize that actually we don't have to follow those things then we pursue our own interests and God certainly is not part of those so that's transgression it's revolt and it's rebellion and it's not reasonable we might think well it is really i'm just doing what everybody does i'm just uh, not doing anything outrageous i'm just following my interests and pursuing uh, those things which uh, i get involved with but what we're doing is ignoring the rules of god and they're not hidden away they're written into our constitution they're in our conscience, even if we're not familiar with the Bible. Well, in the Bible, of course, 
they're plainly set out, the Ten Commandments, the unchanging values of God. And we certainly transgress those, all of them. And uh, that's the one word, transgression. And uh, then we have that uh, term also, whose sin is covered. We have sinned against him and rebelled against the living God. David knew this by personal experience. This uh, is also referenced in the New Testament. I'll just turn to it very briefly. I don't want to spend too long on it. But I did open by saying that the Bible is absolutely consistent. And so all these years later when Paul writes, the Apostle Paul, in Romans and chapter 4, he quotes from this psalm or he refers to it. So chapter 4, verse 6, Even as David also described the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works. Now David doesn't use the term without works. And David actually puts it in the opposite way. Whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Verse 2, blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. And so we have clearer light in the New Testament that uh, this imputation of righteousness is without works. And we are not charged with our sins. That's what David is speaking about. He's blessed because he understands that that great catalogue of offences that he's built up, he's not going to have to answer for. The Lord is not going to bring that against him. He has forgiven him. And so he describes his experience for us. And hopefully we can learn from these things. What relief. He can sense it. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. That relief, how can we describe it? Perhaps when a debt is finally repaid. Perhaps it's a mortgage. Well, that's not such a powerful thing. Perhaps you are seriously in debt, and somebody pays it off, and suddenly it's all gone. Perhaps something else we can relate to. This has been my experience. A terrible dream, a nightmare. And it's so complex and so disturbing and so unsettling. And we have no idea how it will be resolved. And we're really oppressed by it. And then we wake up. It was just a dream. That moment of relief, that lifting and lightness. Life goes on. Well, those are feeble ways to illustrate. But this is what David experienced. Suddenly, he understood he was forgiven. All was well with his soul. Can we say that? I trust many of us can, if not most of us. And what a rejoice thing to rejoice in that is. How wonderful that is, that his sins and his iniquities he has to face no more. What relief. No, no imputation of these things. But to get there, we begin to see how. If we haven't arrived there, if this has not been our experience, David then, as he recounts his experience, tells us. And so here's the first of them in verse 2. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and here it is, and in whose spirit there is no guile. 
no guile. How do we approach God? How do we face up to our needs? We have to be guileless. We have to say to the Lord, you see me, Lord. You know me. You know my sins. I can't hide them. Some of us do try, though, don't we, before we come to Christ? Some of us try perhaps some self-reformation. We try to improve our lives. We recognize that we failed in certain areas. But we imagine that with just a bit of self-improvement, we'll make the mark. God will be pleased with us. No, we have to be, as David, honest and say, there's nothing. Everything I've done is tainted, at least, by sin. And uh, perhaps another approach is this. I am drawn to the faith. I am drawn to this message. There's much that commends it. Uh, after all, it seems to make people happy. And one great appeal is you go to heaven. But I don't really want to give my whole life. I want to hang on to many things. Many things that are actually opposed to God's word. Many secret sins. Hidden sins. That's what guile is. It's being deceptive. It's being crafty. It's presenting yourself in one way, but hiding other aspects of your person. And uh, that's all to be gone. Have no guile. Let there be no hanging on to parts of your life that you're not prepared to give up. As long as you uh, exhibit guile, then this blessing is not yours. That's what David says here. The Lord, and in whose spirit there is no guile. Really, each word is powerful. In the inner man, sincerely, in your deep and profound inner soul, you open up to God. That's what David did. And uh, he experienced the forgiveness of God. But then he uh, recounts his own experience, which I trust we can learn from. I'm going to go through the psalm really almost verse by verse. Verse 3. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. Perhaps that's happened to us. Perhaps that's uh, the common experience. I hear this message. I will not succumb to it. I refuse to bow the knee to God. My independence is my own. It's precious. Nobody's taking that from me. Sin, I'm not a sinner. You see, this is what David did. When I kept silence, I won't admit anything. I'm not confessing anything. I don't acknowledge the sovereignty or even the being of God. But you see, when you do that, and I think to a greater or lesser extent, this will be everyone's experience, perhaps not so dramatically as David here expresses, and perhaps this is the case only when people are really being dealt with by God, when the Lord is really beginning to show their need. You see, when I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. When I kept within me my sin and my iniquity and my transgression, it's like you've eaten something that really disagrees with you, that's really upset you, that makes you feel awful. But you can't get rid of it. It's in you. 
It's in your system. Perhaps your blood is poisoned to some extent. Perhaps it was toxic. And it brings you low. This is what David is speaking about. Spiritually, I kept silence. But inwardly, I was like an old man. My bones waxed old. My strength departed. What you saw of me was not the real me. That was a pretense. Outwardly, I would imagine David, I picture him as always, someone who's rather confident, self-possessed. People looked up to him. But inwardly, he knew trials, torments. And that's the sinner before he comes to Christ. My moisture has turned into the drought of summer. Drought? There's a drought of meaning and purpose. Our soul is thirsting. But then we find the next step. As I said, this is a very straightforward psalm uh, showing us the way to come to Christ, showing us how we might trust in him. And uh, we find the way that he uh, discovers to come to Christ. And it's here in verse 5. I acknowledged my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity I have not hid, hid rather, I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. Here is the turning point in this psalm. Here is the beginning of David's restoration. And for us, if we're not believers, the point at which we come to Christ, come to faith, come to trust in him. I acknowledged my sin unto me, unto thee, and mine iniquity I have not hid. This is how David could then open the psalm saying he's blessed. He needed forgiveness of sins. He needed to say, Lord, I can't pretend anymore. I can't hide it from you. I can't hide it from me. That's what we do as well. We deceive ourselves. We're not that bad. God won't judge me for this. These things aren't real. And we keep trying to push them away and bury them. But they torment us. Until at last we say, Lord, I acknowledge it. I'm a sinner. I've broken every law of yours, every commandment. I can't hide my iniquity and my rebellion. And I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord. One thinks of the prodigal son. We know that well-known psalm, or rather uh, parable. Luke 15, how the prodigal went off into a far country, spent his living on riotous uh, living, his, what his father had given him. Eventually, you know the parable, I'm sure most of us, eventually went and sought work with one of the people of the country feeding the swine and would fain have eaten the husks, it says there. He would have had what those pigs were eating. His soul, you see, was starving. It's not about a man who traveled far away. It's a parable. He was starving, grubbing about for truth and meaning and purpose. And he didn't have it. And he was now bankrupt. Not a penny in his pocket. Spent all. And that's us. We have nothing to pay our way. Until, the parable says, he came to himself. In a moment, as he was there, presumably, feeding the pigs. All at once, he saw it. What a fool he'd been. I will go to my father. 
be set off and he would have been prepared to be a servant. But he underestimated his father, his great heart of kindness. You know the parable, but we won't perhaps divert our minds too much there lest we lose what we're looking at here. I will confess my transgression unto the Lord. That's what David did. And look at this. It's very beautiful. It's not just the poetry and the way it is written. The very next word, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. It's very beautiful, powerful, simple, straightforward. There's no other instructions. It's not like, oh, the Lord says, well, thank you, David, for your more serious approach. However, I want you to do X, Y, and Z. I want you to perform certain number of religious rituals. I want you to go on a pilgrimage. I want you to give to charity. No, he forgave him. And that's as simple as it is when we come to Christ, when we trust in him. There's uh, no doubt, there's the promise that we shall receive forgiveness. And verse 6, for, for this shall everyone that is godly pray unto thee in a time when thou mayest be found. Well, prayer, supplication is required. And there's a warning here. In the day in which, in a time rather, when thou mayest be found. Don't delay. It's fatal. It's uh, your soul could be unparable. Uh, we're going through, actually, in our uh, Friday meetings, uh, it's called the Battle for Mansoul, based on the Holy War. And there are various interesting characters there. And one of them is called Mr. Put-It-Off, or Mr. Delay. And that's an aspect of us that could be fatal. Don't delay. On the Titanic, we all know that great vessel that sank in 1912. It's all very well documented. As the ship sank and people began to depart on the lifeboats, they were quite large, actually. Up to about 60 people could be fitted into each one. And quite a number of those boats got away. Sadly, many of them were not at all full. But uh, it was not very well organized. The ship was listing badly. But there came a time where there were those people in steerage or lower class, I think third class, and their berths were in the lower part of the ship. By the time they emerged onto the decks of the Titanic, all the lifeboats had gone. It was too late. They'd left it too late through no fault of their own, own probably. But it's an illustration. This is urgent. That ship was sinking. Your life is sinking. Time is passing. So here it is. Uh, For this shall everyone that is godly pray unto thee in a time when thou mayest be found. Surely in the floods of great waters they shall not come nigh unto him. You see, once God hears your prayer, no flood will take you away. No flood of events or circumstances or difficulties in life. A flood is something irresistible, overpowering. It gets in everywhere, doesn't it? We've read of flooding in certain parts of our own land in recent times, and it gets in through every crack. You might try and waterproof and block and put sandbags up, but water is so powerful. And then, of course, the great flood of judgment. 
at the end, it will carry us away. But David says, the floods of great waters, they shall not come nigh unto him. These are the promises. These are the certainties. Verse 7, thou art my hiding place. Thou shalt preserve me from trouble. What is David's refuge? Well, it's God, yes. But it's not just God changing his mind. It's God who has made a sacrifice in his son. It is God who has actually dealt with our iniquities and sins. If our sin and if our iniquity was so serious as to keep us apart from him, it must be dealt with. It's not just going to be forgotten about. We've sinned against God. And we have New Testament light now. We can say that the Lord Jesus Christ is our hiding place. We rest in him. We hide in him from all those threats and woes and floods, from all the pending judgment, from all the disquiet and unhappiness. What a refuge. What a sanctuary. Christ. As the world sees him, a man expiring on a cross. As we see it, his greatest moment of glory. The Son of God expiring there for us. Not a symbolic death, but an atonement. There the debt was being paid. There, if you like, the grown-ups were sorting out all our financial woes and emerged saying, it's all done. The debt's paid. We're free to go. And he's risen from the dead. But we need to put our confidence in him. Is that your refuge and hiding place? That the Lord shall preserve us from all trouble? He's speaking about deliverance and surely salvation, the second part of verse 7. Thou shalt compass me about with songs of deliverance. Not just in David's case, deliverance from his political woes or his enemies or the Canaanites or any other thing. But the deliverance of his soul from perdition. That's surely in mind here. And then we see the progress, like I said, that the steps and stages of this psalm are very plain and very remarkable. The journey to faith and beyond faith. Verse 8, having now been forgiven, having new life through faith. This is now how we live our lives. This is the Lord speaking now, not David. Of course, the whole psalm is inspired by the Lord. But now the voice of God, as it were, verse 8, I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. Not you, David. You made a mess of it. You and I made a mess of our lives. When we were in control, the way we chose was foolishness, a way to destruction and harm, disappointment. But once we're the Lord's, he instructs us and teaches us in the way in which we shall go. I will guide thee with mine eye. His eye is ever upon us. It's personal. He looks upon his dear children, his redeemed, and guides them all the days of their life. Well, just some final warnings now. What about if you hear such a message and you think, well, that's all very nice, it's all very grand, all very interesting. Not for me. Thank you. 
And of course, no matter how eloquently or feelingfully anyone might appeal, there will always be those who are unmoved, unaffected. We saw it with Christ's own ministry where people walked away. But yet in kindness, he gives us this warning. Don't be as the horse, verse 9, or as the mule, which have no understanding. You see, by rejection of the word of God, by refusal to admit any of the points that we've been considering, you lack understanding, is what the Lord says. You have no understanding. You think you do, and that's this world. It thinks, it understands life. It knows all things, knows that there's no God, knows that just by chance everything happened, knows that morality is a flexible choice, whatever the season is, knows nothing. How can it be so? Has no understanding. And so if you are such a person and imagine that by being so, you're free. That's what people think. Oh, religion. That's just to restrict you. That's just some old-fashioned controlling thing. That's just for weak-minded, feeble people. Not me. No, the truth is the opposite. You're the one that will be controlled by other forces and other factors. You're not independent. The world controls you. The devil controls you. It says so here in these words, whose mouth must be held in with bit and bridle lest they come near to thee. You're not free. You've been harnessed. Someone else, you see that horse or mule, great strong animal, yes, but it doesn't choose where to go. The rider determines that. And so for all your energies and all your potentials, all your gifts that you may have, they will not be deployed for God's glory. They will be expended on this vain world. And you have no control over it. Your own lusts, the propaganda, the delusions of this world, they will control you. You answer to them, to the fashions of this world. You dare not depart. You can't. And if you attempt to do so, the rider pulls on the rein and the bit bites into you. It's uncomfortable and painful. Well, the picture is plain enough for us there. And David adds in verse 10, many sorrows shall come to the wicked. Don't go that way. It's a warning, but it's a warning in kindness. If you still won't heed what David says, think again. Don't do it. And then the wonderful promises that flow towards the end of the psalm there, halfway through verse 10. But he that trusteth in the Lord, mercy shall compass him about. And the theology, if you like, the doctrines of the Bible and every word are plainly spoken there. If you trust in the Lord, it's mercy. It's not reward. It's not God saying, well done. You are a righteous, upright person. You have done better than your peers. You will be rewarded with my favor. No, it's always mercy, isn't it? Right to the end for us. Kindness. What a wonderful thing. We're not, not required anymore to keep all the dictates of the law for salvation. We are required. It is the standard of the Christian. And it's wonderful. And we voluntarily do obey those laws because they're our heavenly fathers. But it's mercy that surrounds us. 
And finally, we close with that final verse. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, ye righteous, and shout for joy, all ye that are upright in heart. So we're blessed, we're exhorted to be glad. Are you glad in the Lord, mind you? Not in this world's affairs. Do you rejoice? We ought to do so, David did, because he understood well that he was so undeserving, that he had been so unwise and so foolish. He'd experienced the depths of woe, and darkness in his heart, and experienced the wonderful kind delivery of God. And then, ye righteous, David, you're not righteous. No, but he had imputed righteousness. Shout for joy, all ye that are upright in heart. Is that us? Yes, it can be. That's the gift that God is giving to us. That's the appeal. That's the unchanging message of salvation. The question really is, what will we do about it? If we are believers, if we've tasted of these things, then we should rejoice and be glad. If we're not, use David as your model. Follow carefully every step. Trust only in the Lord, and you will know this wonderful and great deliverance. Amen. Let's sing our final hymn, which is number 514. Hymn number 514, Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly.